Welcome to 15 Minutes of Fangs and Folklore with your host, Matthew Miller. We give you pint-sized, bite-sized pieces of supernatural monster lore, exploring their origins, their history, and their meaning to the human condition. Listen, if you dare. It feeds on fear. It picks on the vulnerable. It torments and terrifies entire families. It moves into your home against your will, uninvited, and tears the house apart. It's loud, boisterous, threatening, intelligent, and evil. It is a poltergeist. I'm your host, Matthew Miller, expert on all things monster and paranormal. I'm a horror writer from the dark, haunted swamps of Louisiana, and it's my pleasure to welcome you into my terrifying world. Please check out my books on Amazon, beginning with Blood Feud, a punk rock vampire story, which is volume one of the Gravediggers series. The Gravediggers are a punk rock band who keep crossing paths with all sorts of dark, evil, nasty creatures. It's horror and comedy in one super entertaining series. It's a six-part series. One through three are out now. Four is coming out any day now. It is free with Kindle Unlimited and very cheap on uh, Kindle or in paperback. Number 284, Green Street, Enfield, England. It's north of the city of London. It's an address well known to paranormal enthusiasts because from 1977 to 1979, in spurts, it was the home to the Enfield Poltergeist. If you listened to the podcast before this one, which was the first one in the Poltergeist series, then you know that the average poltergeist haunting lasts about two or three months. This one lasted one and a half years, but it came and went. It wasn't constant. It is unusually long for a poltergeist, but not unheard of. So it all began with a phone call from Peggy Hodgson, a single mother of two girls, Janet, 11 years old, and Margaret, 13 years old. Peggy was renting the Green Street house. It's a simple row house. You can still find it on Google Earth. It looked just like every other house on the street, a working class, you know, row house from the outside. Peggy called the police on that day, claiming that her furniture was moving on its own and that her daughters were hearing scratching and knocking on the walls. That scratching proceeding to knocking, by the way, is the classical beginning of a poltergeist haunting. In my last podcast, I talked about all the things that poltergeist cases have in common. Pubescent young people, check. Starts with scratching, check. Proceeds to knocking, check. Right? So this is a very typical poltergeist uh, encounter. No matter what happened later in the case, this leads, to, uh, leads me to believe that it was a genuine poltergeist infestation because two working-class girls in England in 1977 were by no means experts on poltergeists. They couldn't have been. No one had even really heard of poltergeists until the movie came out in 19, when was it, 1982, I think. So a constable, a police person, a woman actually, police woman, arrived and investigated. She claimed to have witnessed a chair wobble, quote, wobble and slide, close quote, by itself with no visible means of movement. She also said, quote, a large armchair moved unassisted four feet across the floor, close quote. 
over the year and half haunting, 30, more than 30 actually, but at least 30 witnesses claimed to have personally witnessed furniture moving by itself, objects being thrown around, the girls Janet and Margaret levitating, disembodied voices knocking on the walls. These witnesses included neighbors, paranormal investigators, journalists, police, several police, and others. So I'm going to give you a list of the things that uh, Peggy, Janet, and Margaret reported happening. A. Scribbling on walls. There was writing on the walls. I couldn't find out what it said. I, I don't think I don't know if that information is available or if it was just scribbling, you know, meaningless scribbling to begin with. But there was a form of wall writing. Next, lots of furniture moving by itself and being overturned, even heavy furniture. Next, the girls levitating above their beds, even high up into the air, and even being thrown out of bed, even being thrown across the room. There was a large, heavy dresser in the girls, they shared a room, so in their room, that moved by itself and slammed against the door and locked them inside. This is when the mother panicked and called, one time that she called the police. Things would catch fire spontaneously right in front of everyone's eyes. Cups would fill with water with no visible source. Just an empty cup fills up with water with no water pouring into it somehow. Once, the window curtain next to Janet's bed grabbed her around the neck and pulled her out of bed. The curtain did. became like animate. Lots of disembodied voices speaking, especially growling male voices. Now, Janet spoke in a raspy male voice, claiming to be kind of channeling a ghost. It claimed to be the ghost of a man named Bill Wilkins, who claimed to have died in the living room chair of a hemorrhage. And it was confirmed by tracing the previous owners of the house that there was a man named Bill Wilkins who indeed died in that living room. Now, remember, if you listen to the last episode, one common trait of poltergeists is to claim to be the ghost of someone who died, but then to change their story. They're, they're big liars. So that's typical of a poltergeist haunting. The Daily Mirror, which fair, to be fair is a tabloid more than like a super objective newspaper, but they sent a photographer named Graham Morris to investigate. He claimed to have witnessed all sorts of paranormal activity. He saw objects flying around by themselves, furniture moving. He claimed to have seen lots of that. So next, they invite in the Society of Psychical Research. This was a paranormal group, uh, investigators, sort of like today's Zach Bagans and uh, Nick Groff. So they sent three people to investigate, Maurice Gross, Anita Gregory, and Guy Lyon Playfair. I guess if he was English, it would be Guy Lyon, but his name looks French, so I'm going to say Guy Lyon Playfair, Mr. Playfair. And they all witnessed uh, paranormal events. Here is what Maurice Gross, one of those investigators, said, quote, When I first got there, nothing happened for a while. Then I experienced Lego pieces flying across the room and marbles. And the extraordinary thing was, when you picked them up, they were hot. He goes on to say, I was standing in the kitchen, and a t-shirt leapt off the table and flew into the other side of the room while I was standing by it. Close quote. That detail about the objects that were flying around being hot, that's very interesting, is it? isn't it? If this is a real paranormal case, you have to wonder what makes them hot. Is it their interaction with another realm, another dimension? Is it that the spirit is evil and from hell? <laughs> or is it something else entirely? Very interesting detail. Now, 
by, let's see, by late 19... So it took place from 1977 to 1979. Um, so by late 1978, the phenomena were starting to die down, get weaker. Uh, they brought in a Catholic priest, especially. Things died down after that. And I said in the last episode that there are three ways a poltergeist will finally leave and stop its harassment. One, an exorcism or a series of exorcisms. Two, the purpose, the person or people it's focusing on move away. Or three, it just fades away and stops. And that's what's happened here, right? The, uh, it just kind of faded away. Now, there was a blessing by the Catholic priest, not a full-out full exorcism, but a blessing. And it seemed to die down after that, and then it just stopped it and went away, like many do. And, of course, it was focusing on the two girls. The focus on pubescent people is very common in a poltergeist case. Well, it stopped, or did it? <laughs> you see, the poltergeist did stop picking on Janet and Margaret, but the family finally moved away, and another family moved in. That new family only stayed two months, then they got the hell out of there. They claimed that they heard <clears throat> disembodied voices and even saw the figure of a man walking into rooms. Could the poltergeist have been associated with the house then, and not specifically with Janet and Margaret? We'll just never know, really. Do poltergeists pick on people or stay in houses? I don't know. I'm not sure. Before I briefly discuss the controversial parts of the haunting, I want to play for you a clip of the voice that spoke through Janet. So this is a real audio tape, uh, from 1977, I suppose, 78. And it's Janet, the 11-year-old girl speaking, but speaking with a different voice. Okay, so listen. And I, uh, it's, it's old audio tape, you know, from a cassette tape from the 70s. So the quality is not terrific, but just take a listen. Fantastic radio. Fantastic. Sorry, Bill, can you say that again, please? Why can't Janet fool you? I'm invisible. You're invisible? Why are you invisible? Well, what do you think? I mean, it definitely sounds like a man. I know people can alter their voices, right? I mean, I can speak like this right now if I try. But it's hard to imagine an 11-year-old girl producing that kind of booming baritone voice. And also, Janet was watched while the voice spoke. Sometimes it spoke through her and she did move her mouth, but in other times, she didn't move her mouth and the voice still persisted. She would have had to have been a very skilled ventriloquist, really, to pull that kind of thing off, not moving the mouth, speaking in that particular kind of deep male growling voice. I mean, maybe she was, but it just seems unlikely for an 11-year-old girl from working-class England. All right, now to the skeptics. <laughs> uh, some professional stage magicians went to the house to investigate, you know, the things that, that everyone was claiming were happening. These magicians included such names as Milburn Christopher. He visited, and he took a look and saw everything. He concluded that he saw nothing that could not have been staged or faked. In other words, he kind of said, well, I think I, a professional stage magician, could, could pull this off. You know, it's, it doesn't have to be supernatural in origin. 
Now, granted, an 11 and a 13-year-old girl are not professional stage magicians, but that was his opinion. Now, to be fair, the Society of Psychical Research members, those three investigators, they did catch the girls a few times doing things like bending spoons when they didn't know a camera was watching, or banging on the ceilings with broom handles. And you might think, okay, well, that settles it, right? Not so fast. First of all, in 1980, on a TV interview, Janet was asked if the girls had faked it. And she said, quote, Oh yeah, once or twice we faked it, just to see if Mr. Gross and Mr. Playfair would catch us. They always did, end quote. And she went on to say that about 2% of the phenomena were them faking it, only about 2%. She said the rest was authentic. Now, also, some of the things, could they really have been done by, by an 11 and a 13-year-old girl? Heavy furniture moving across the room with no one around? What kind of mechanism could they have made for that? You know, um, Voices coming from the other side of the house when everyone in the house was in a single room? Again, you'd have to be the world's best ventriloquist. Now, skeptics say, they also note how, you know, two young girls going through puberty, they might want attention, especially when a big TV crew shows up at their house. They're getting famous around England. Their name's in the newspapers, the tabloids. So maybe they're going to fake it to get the attention. But again, what about all of the witnesses who swore they saw things like furniture moving around by itself, things flying across the room, levitation, voices from other places? How could two young girls have faked all of that for a year and a half and duped so many witnesses, including police men and police women and magicians and, and investigators. I don't know. Seems like a stretch for me. I just don't think they could have done that. What do you think? Do you think that the infield poltergeist was the work of two clever sisters who just wanted attention, were just having some fun? Now, I admit you could probably, you know, in a, in a situation where everyone already believes it's a ghost, you could probably get away with some things like banging when no one's looking or pushing a chair over when no one's looking and pretending to be shocked, things like that, sure. But all of this for a year and a half is just too much. So was it a real poltergeist case? I personally think that it was a real poltergeist. And you, as I've said before, I wouldn't be doing this podcast if I didn't believe in some sort of supernatural phenomena. I think that it was real. If such a thing exists, it was real. Too many of the things just could not have been pulled off by the sisters. Just impossible. You probably know the famous paranormal investigating couple Ed and Lorraine Warren. They are, I mean, now I believe they're deceased. But they, for decades, went around investigating claims like this. They've made, uh, made movies about them, like The Conjuring. Uh, Conjuring 2, by the way, was based on this. So the 2016 film, The Conjuring 2, was based on the infield poltergeist. When Ed and Lorraine Warren, the real people, not the actors, actually went to the infield house, stayed a while, and investigated. They concluded that the activity was definitely paranormal. And then Ed, Edler uh, Warren, believed that it was not a ghost, but a demon at work. Okay, he was pretty quick to say everything was a demon, to be fair, if you follow their lives' work. But I've said before, I personally think that if poltergeists are supernatural, then they're not just ghosts. They're demons pretending to be ghosts. They just don't, how do I say, they go beyond what ghosts are capable of. So if this case was indeed paranormal, I do believe it was demonic or the work of some kind, some kind of evil spirit pretending to be the ghost of Bill Wilkins. What do you think? I take it for a very, very well-documented uh, poltergeist case. What would you do if this happened at your house? I always thought about that. If things started flying around, would I just run away and leave forever? Would I try to fight it? 
what I call in a priest or a religious figure? Would you, could you think, just learn to live with it? <laughs> just go about your day? Oh, that's just the ghost. Could you ignore it all? You know, with poltergeists, it seems that the fear they create, the emotion they create, feeds them, makes them grow stronger. If you just ignored them, would that make them go away? Hmm, I don't want to find out. Tonight, if your living room chair moves across the room by itself, maybe you'll have to decide what to do sooner than you thought. Thanks for listening, and sleep well, if you can.